Well, good morning, Trinity Presbyterian Church. Good to see you all this morning. Haven't been here for a while. It's been probably a good five years. Uh, the last time I was invited, I couldn't come because I was interim of my church, uh, which is Crossings Community Church, also a Presbyterian Church up uh, in Northeast Columbia. So let me give you greetings from them uh, this morning. And uh, thanks to you for giving me the opportunity to come back and share some things from God's Word. Um, and the topic that I want to take up today, uh, I have a theme uh, that comes right out of Genesis chapter 2, and the theme is, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, uh, over the past five years that I haven't been here at your church, uh, I've been going through some very interesting stuff. Uh, first of all, we had this thing called covid you all remember that, right? Uh, that's still running around actually a little bit. Um, I had an issue of having a heart attack uh, and that catching COVID slightly after the heart attack as well. So open heart surgery with COVID, I thought, well, this is the end of David Cashin. Um, and it was minor. What a, what a quirky disease, you know? Uh, you'd figure somebody who just had open-heart surgery would just pass away immediately, and uh, it was like I had slight sniffles, and that was it. Well, uh, then about two months ago, I got a second heart attack, which was another way of saying, okay, Dave, it's time for you to retire. Uh, and another issue that's been kind of ongoing for the last six years is uh, my wife's diagnosis with Alzheimer's. So it's been uh, a rough five or six years uh, since I last saw you guys. And one of the things that happens when you are in this kind of a situation is you discover how important it is that you're not alone. And you begin to discover there are a lot of people in the Church of Jesus Christ that are doing the kinds of ministries that nobody notices. Have you ever seen that? Uh, we've had people come alongside of us that I honestly didn't know what they did in the church. You know, because we tend to focus on the people who are up at front, you know, the person who preaches or the music leader or the youth leader or the elders and deacons and all these other important people. And then there are lots of people in the church doing stuff that maybe nobody's even aware of. Can I, can I give you a little example? Uh, two weeks ago, Friday, <clears throat> my wife tells me that she's gonna have a Bible study on Saturday and therefore, since she's free today, she'd like to go with me to my doctor's appointment. And I said, that's great. And one of the things I have to constantly learn is sometimes when someone has Alzheimer's, they, they think they know when something's going to happen, but that's not actually when it's gonna happen. So about 15 minutes after we left for my doctor's appointment, the lady who is coming to take my wife to the Bible study arrives at our house, calls on the phone, and nobody's there. And she's immediately, oh, has Dave had a second heart or a third heart attack? What, what's happening with Margaretta? Who, who's taking care of them? So she, you know, she puts two and two together, comes up with seven, and she starts calling everybody, uh, you know, the church, the pastor, the friends, the people from the Bible study. Have you heard what's happening with, with Dave Cashin and what's going on? And, of course, we, we drive home from the doctor's office, and there's, you know, 27 messages on the phone. And we listened dutifully to all 27. And I thought, isn't this wonderful? I mean, okay, it was a misunderstanding. It was a miscommunication. Nobody, un yeah, but the reality that there was this community that gathered around. 
and that helped us and was ready to help us in the midst of a very difficult aspect or phase in our lives. And that's why this is a brand new sermon for me, so it's a little bit, you know, not quite well put together. I'm just kind of working on this. But I've been thinking a lot about community. What does the Lord want to teach us about community and how that works? And what does the Word of God teach us about building community in the church? So the verse that came first to mind to me was Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, typically that verse is used to teach on marriage, which is wonderful. We could do that, but I'm not going to talk about marriage here today. Uh, But what we see there is that God creates human community. In the beginning, it's just husband and wife, Adam and Eve. Over time, this expands to include children, grandchildren, and then a whole society that develops out of this initial family unit. And so uh, Genesis 2.18 puts it this way. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, you notice I put a little subscript there. Uh, The word for helper is the word ezer. And sometimes I think people think, okay, this is kind of hierarchical. The man's up here, and he's got his little helper down here, right? I took my granddaughter to help me out with some work I was doing on Saturday. And so she was my helper on the day Saturday and all the work that I was doing. Um, And I actually paid her for it. So she was sort of like my employee. It was her first job. I got to give my granddaughter her first job. And you would think, okay, that's what God means when he says helper. And that's actually not what God means. Because if you look at the word ezer, the person most commonly uh, associated with that word helper is God himself. It strikes me uh, that um, wonderful Uh, old hymn that goes like this, God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. You're familiar with that song. Our help in ages past. God is our helper. The Holy Spirit is your helper. So this is not a hierarchical thing. This is part of the interdependency in which God builds community. And I was asking myself, well, Lord, what passage of Scripture could we look at that really grapples with this reality of what we are as the body of Christ. And how would we use this? How would we allow your spirit to work in our lives such that we build this kind of Christian community, what we like to call the body of Christ? So uh, let me just give you a couple of key assumptions uh, about that passage before we look at the problem that I think Scripture wants to address. Now, The key assumptions from Genesis 2.18 is this. Scripture does not anticipate that everyone will marry. Okay, we know some people are called to a lifestyle of singleness in serving the Lord. That's mentioned in the New Testament. Scripture does not anticipate that everyone will have children and build families. Uh, There are some couples that can't have children. Uh, There are some that, for one reason or another, are never able to have uh, children. But that passage refers to them as well. What the scripture does anticipate is that everyone who belongs to Jesus as part of his body will live in interdependent relationship. Now, we've just finished, hopefully, something called COVID. What did COVID do to us? Well, for one thing, it shut down our churches for a while. 
For another thing, it tended to distance us from each other. But I would like to argue that COVID was not the cause of that problem. COVID merely demonstrated just how deep the problem is. Let me give you some examples. This past week, I was reading a New York Times article, and it was dealing with loneliness in American society. And uh, if you notice on the, on the slide on the screen there, I actually just copied this right off the New York Times. And the title of the article was, How to Make and Keep Friends in Adulthood. And it was being taught by a lady named Catherine Pearson, who is, quote, a friendship expert, sharing strategies for finding connection in a lonely, disconnected world. Wow, we have friendship experts. That's something new to me. Can you imagine having a friendship expert 100 years ago? Would that be something you could market and make money on? I don't think so. Um, but clearly things are different 100 years later. I, I can illustrate one of those differences. Friends, uh, here it is. I, I like to call this the sword of Darth Vader. You know, that last of the first three films in the trilogy where there's a, something sitting on the table and the, the, the emperor says, you want this? Right? Okay. Um, you may have noticed that, that this is slightly addictive. Um, you know, my wife and I have date nights. Uh, we go out on dates. And, and it's always kind of a riot for me because we'll go to, you know, Olive Garden or some other place. And we're sitting there having a conversation. And then sometimes we'll just kind of look around the room. It's a Friday night. And there are lots of young couples there. And you can guess what these young couples are doing. They're, they're doing this. And I'm thinking, is this, is this, are, are they talking to each other through the phone across the table? Is this, is this, well, you know that these things are addictive, don't you? And did you know that anything that you're addicted to has a tendency to have a powerful social consequence? It doesn't connect us it separates us. Now, uh, obviously, I have one, so I don't consider this sin necessarily. Um, but wow, this is a dangerous thing. The reality is that uh, a fellow actually wrote a book about this entitled Three Pieces of Glass. And the three pieces of glass he's talking about is, number one, this. Number two, your computer screen. Number three, the windshield of your car. And those three pieces of glass have a great tendency to make us feel like we're connected to the world. You're driving in your car and looking at things, or you're looking for something on your cell phone, or you're doing something with your computer. And his response is to say, in actual fact, these things disconnect us from each other. They disconnect us. They create a lonely disconnected world. And let me just show you some statistics about this. Uh, they were doing a study uh, on friendship in America. And uh, this is a study that gets repeated almost every year, and you get a chance to see where people are at. And one of the things that the 2021 study found, and this is a three times increase over what was true 20 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, it was like 8% of men and women in America have no close friends. Today, it's 25% state that they have absolutely not a single close friend. By the way, I, I know how that is. 
because uh, I had an addiction at one stage in my life when I was younger. It, it wasn't this. It wasn't as innocuous as this. Um, I started on drugs when I was 13 years old. Uh, lots, long story, I won't tell you the, the whole of it, but I did drugs every day, all the time, through all four years of high school. Someone might ask, how in the world did you graduate from high school? Well, I got expelled from a couple of different schools. Uh, D minus average, I guess. Uh, how I ever got through, at the end of that time, I met the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what happens when you're addicted to something? Your social growth stops. So as a brand new minted Christian, I went off to Gordon College as a freshman. I was 17 years old in 1972, way, way back. And at that point, even though I was 17, my behavior patterns were like a 13-year-old. Four years of addiction, you don't grow. You stay where you were when you were 13. Hold that thought, because I got a story to tell about that. Second point, oh, oh, and by the way, during that time, high school, I had no friends. No friends at all. Well, yeah, I had some buddies that we'd do stuff with, which generally ended us up in the backseat of a police car. I had the kind of friends that you don't want to have, okay? And frankly, I was the kind of friend you would not want to have. That's my story. Well, I get to college, and I'm still acting like a 13-year-old. Hold that thought. Okay, the U.S. government has actually stated that it is concerned about an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in America, that we are a disconnected, lonely, isolated nation. And by the way, as I said before, don't blame COVID. I think COVID just made the problem explicit, obvious. Here's another interesting fact. A book came out about 10 years ago entitled Generation IY, and it was a research study on how technology, particularly the three pieces of glass, affect young people. And what they pointed out from psychological studies was that in a 10-year period from 2002 to 2012, there was a 40% drop in empathy measured through these different tests they did, 40% drop in empathy among youth aged 8 to 16. And they tied it directly to internet and cell phone addiction. And one might add to that depression, anxiety. Uh, what kind of news do you get to see almost anywhere you go today? Relentlessly, 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 negative, 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 negative. And that's what we're filling our heads with, what our kids are filling their heads with. Uh, does that lead to problems in schools? Of course. I had those same kind of problems. Addicted to drugs, no friends, depression, constant, anxiety, constant, suicidal thoughts, constant. Any kind of addiction will do that to you even if it's something relatively innocuous, but it has that impact. So what I would like to say is that we as a society are losing the social skills needed to build relationships. We are becoming lonelier and lonelier and more and more disconnected. Well, now let's go, that's the bad news. Let's go to the scripture and see some good news on this. 
Because the Bible conceives of this place and these people as a community who are so intimately related to each other that you are called the body of Christ. You are a integrated whole, a community of believers in Jesus. And what is that community to look like? Well, would you all stand with me? And I don't want to put you all to sleep, so we're going to actually do uh, a couple of stand up and sit downs. We're going to read through just a a verse or two of this passage, then you'll sit down and we'll talk a little bit, then we're going to go on to the next part, and that way we kind of get to see directly what the Scripture says and see how that applies. So let's begin with 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Please be seated. What's the main point that Paul's making here? He's literally picking the most diverse and potentially opposed groups of people, and he's putting them together. For instance, Jews and Greeks. Now, that's two groups of people who absolutely did get not get along. Uh, the Greeks had oppressed the Jews. In the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Greek ruler of the area where, where Israel is, uh, he had decided that he was God. He actually gave himself a name, Epiphanes, which meant he was literally a, re- a revelation of God. And uh, he decided to do something really fancy in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He decided to go into that temple as a pagan Greek and sacrifice a pig on the Lord's altar in the temple. This led to a huge revolt, a big war. Lots and lots of people died. And eventually Antiochus was driven out of the area we call Israel today. That's the kind of relationships Jews and Greeks had uh, at enmity with each other. The Greeks were pagans. They were idolaters. For a Jew to go into a Greek home was, first of all, forbidden. And why was it forbidden? Because to enter into a pagan home made you ritually unclean, at least in the thinking of the day. By the way, you see little echoes of that in uh, Acts chapter 12, right? When Peter goes to Cornelius' house And initially, you know, it's kind of like he goes inside with great trepidation and he says to Cornelius, you know that I as a Jew am not supposed to go in to a pagan home. Right? That was the nature of the relationship. And yet Paul says they have become one in Jesus. Community has been built. Slaves are free. That's another category. And wow, what a difference that is. Uh, If you're a slave, you don't own yourself. You are owned by someone else. You don't get paid. You basically work 24-7, 365 days a year, and you make absolutely nothing. You are working only for the profit of the one who owns you. Free person, this is somebody who can start his own company or her own company, make their own money, harvest their own fields, and two very, very different groups. 
Which leads me to want to talk a little bit about something that I think is problematical in the church. And that is, if you take the next slide, one of my students actually uh, helped me to put a word to this. Now, excuse me if this seems a little strong, but when I was a missionary in Bangladesh, I had a little expression that I used to repeat to myself from time to time. And the expression went like this. Here in Bangladesh, once every month, an idiot flies in on an airplane with his pockets stuffed full of cash looking for God's man. And unfortunately, he almost always finds him. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, pretty American people, well-meaning Christians maybe, with lots of money, would come to Bangladesh, and the idea was I'll buy somebody there, and I'll use that person to be able to write big letters about fantastic work that I'm doing, and the money will flow, and big things will happen. Uh, And almost always they would end up in cahoots with someone who was completely immoral, didn't know Christ at all, but knew how to say the right words to get that money. And so I had a great deal of, what should we say, disdain for top-down economics. The idea that somebody can fly in at the top and be the expert. And my student, who was actually writing on this problem, coined a phrase for me. She called it resource righteousness. And I thought, isn't that exactly how it is? We think that the rich shall teach the poor. By the way, there's a book on that subject. Do we have that up on the screen? Yeah. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You can't see the small text, but, but here's what it says. What the rich teach their kids about money that the poor and the middle class do not. What does that mean? Well, see, rich people are smart and poor people are dumb. So the rich teach the poor. Right? But the fact of the matter is that in the scriptures... There ain't no difference between being slave or free or being rich or poor. And in fact, there is a principle, I think, in the scriptures that says that interdependence builds community when we realize we can learn from everyone. Let me ask you a question. What can the poor teach you? Well, of course, we think, wow, we don't have a whole lot of poor people necessarily in our congregation, But if you look at history, and you look at a place like Bangladesh where I served, the vast majority of people throughout history and in Bangladesh were impoverished. How did they survive? They survived by community, by building community. So for instance, harvest season has come. One of the farmers is sick. He can't harvest his fields. What do the other farmers do? They harvest his fields for him for free as an aspect of community. So what does it mean to say that whether you're a Jew or Greek, whether you're rich or poor, whatever your background, we all have something to learn and to gain from each other. And I think that is a deep principle of scripture. Interdependence between each other builds community. Let's go on to our next passage. Stand for me if you would. 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17. Every part of the body is important. For the body is not one part, but many. 
If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Please be seated. The principle here is that every member is important. Every person in a congregation is important. And for me, now that I'm not quite what I used to be, I don't have the strength that I used to have, for the first time in my life, I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum. It always, in the past, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a missionary, it's me giving, me giving, me giving. And now suddenly I'm in a position where, hey friends, I'm, I'm receiving, I'm receiving. I'm receiving, and I have to because I couldn't survive without it. And you know, I think that's the beauty. You know what happens when you start to receive and you're in my position? You discover a bunch of people in the church that you hardly knew were there because you didn't need them before. They were doing this kind of ministry. They've been doing it for years, but you didn't know about it because it's behind the scenes. I like to say that, that this passage is really telling us that it's not just about the people up in front. Uh, in fact, I would wager to say that they are relatively minor in the economy of God. It is the people that know how to visit the sick, to go to the shut-ins, who know how to show hospitality, to open their homes to strangers. It's the people that do these kind of little things, the ones who are the feet by the way, uh, who wants to be a foot? Somebody once said the most beautiful thing on a baby uh, is their feet, and the most ugly thing on an old person like me is their feet. Now, we generally think in terms of just how ugly our feet are, but do you realize what happens if you lose a little toe? I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but they say that you almost have to relearn how to walk because that little toe is so important to proper balance in walking and especially in running. The part of the body that is perhaps considered less important may actually prove to be the most important. Every member in the body of Christ is important, and that's true of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are important in the work that you do. Now, let's go ahead on this. Come and stand one more time, uh, and let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 18 to 22. But now God has arranged the parts, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But now there are many parts, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Please be seated. Let me tell you a quick story here. Uh, when I was being discipled in my early days as a Christian, uh, there was a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith. He's now home with the Lord. Uh, but he would come through from time to time and do seminars for our youth group. And uh, one time he was there talking on this very passage and talking about the importance of every member of the congregation. Now, in the church where he was pastoring, there was a young woman uh, who had major disabilities. She was in her late teens uh, and had a lot of 
physical issues. I'm sure many of you have had relatives or friends or people in that kind of a category. And one day, as Chuck was walking through his church, a number of his young people in the youth group were having, you know, your typical teenage kind of conversation. And he caught wind of the fact that they were talking about this young woman in a disparaging fashion. And uh, he, as a pastor, knew to immediately intervene in that. And he went immediately to the group as they were talking. And he walked them through a truth that they needed to understand. He said this to them, if you could see this young woman as she will be glorified in God's kingdom when he returns, you would be sore tempted to fall down and worship. The glory that is coming to every member of the body of Christ, and that includes, perhaps especially includes, the weaker members of the body. Do we think about even those who have great disability as also contributing tremendously to our interdependence and the reality that we are one in the body of Christ. Okay, I do have one more passage for us to read. Please stand again. We're going to look uh, at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 23 to 24. Uh, How to encourage those with harder ministries. And those parts of the body which we consider less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our less presentable parts become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable parts have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that part which lacked. You may be seated. Wow. You know, I I wrestled with this particular verse all week giving more honor to that part which lacked. Wow. How does that work in the body of Christ? How do we say that the parts that we think are unimportant may be the most important? How do we give the greatest honor to those? You know, there are a lot of people today who are engaged in very difficult ministries. Um, People who take care of people with Alzheimer's. I'm in that category. I'm now a caregiver. It's tough. This will be the hardest thing I'll ever do. Uh, It really challenges you to the core. And now, of course, after a couple of heart attacks, it's like, hmm, am I going to outlive her or am I not? And if I don't outlive her, how am I going to make sure she's taken care of? These are very, you know, I'll bet you every single one of you knows somebody who's in that position we'll call for a call of hands here, but after I've gotten into this situation, I'm realizing this is a very common thing. This is happening all over the place, all around us. I really believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to that problem. How do we support? How do we help? How do we build community in the midst of the needs that we have in our society? Now, our society is saying increasingly, just throw money at it. Money is not the problem. It's the reality of interdependent relationship. That's what's breaking down in our society, and I believe that the body of Christ is the answer to that problem. Uh, We're a little bit late on time, so I'm not going to go on to the final passage. Let me just mention a couple of principles and one application that I hope will encourage you, because we're going to go back to David Cashin at 17. Pretty messed up teenage kid. Uh, 
Even though I'd gotten out of drugs, I'd found Jesus, I'd given my life to Jesus, but I still didn't have any friends, and I still was as about as awkward as you can get. Uh, let me just give you a fun, funny little example. Uh, we would have open dorms where the girls were allowed to come up and you know, visit in the boys' you know, dorms. And I thought, oh, what a great way to find myself a girlfriend. I'll climb the walls. And as they come through the door, I'll wave at them. And, I, you know, I, I was pretty lithe at that time. I put one foot on one side of the wall, another foot like that, and hands on the other side. And then I'd walk up the wall. And when I got to the top of the ceiling, girls would come in through the door, and I'd wave at them like this. See, only two feet in one hand, and I'm still... Does that sound an impressive sort of thing to do? Or maybe you just kind of... Look like you're completely out of your mind. And uh, I had an RA on that floor by the name of Bruce Dreisbach. And uh, Bruce could understand this, this kid needs some help. But sometimes you need a challenge too, don't you? So Bruce took me aside one day <clears throat> and he said, Cashin, uh, you live a little too much in your own little world. You really need to meet other people and kind of get out of yourself. So here's what I want you to do. I've got a little assignment for you. He gave me a piece of paper with 10 questions on it. And he said, every week, every Sunday at church, I want you to meet two new people. And here are 10 questions that I want you to ask. And here's the thing, gotta memorize the questions. Don't read them off a sheet of paper. Gotta memorize them, put them in your head, and then ask these questions. And then every Sunday night, you'll come here back when we have our Bible study, and you'll report to me, you know, what you learned from those two people that you met at church. Now, friends, for the first month or two of this, awkward doesn't even begin to describe the experience. Here was a guy who absolutely had no idea how to build relationships, had no friends, and for the first two months, it was pulling teeth. But the Lord seemed to say, I want you to care for people. Go out and do this and see what happens. Over time, a very interesting thing began to happen. First of all, it began to become fun. It was enjoyable. Second thing that struck me was, for the first time in my life, I started to have friends. And one of them I was just talking to this past week, Mike Ambrose. He's a pastor up in Connecticut. And we became friends during that time when I was starting to learn what it means to build relationships. And 50 years later, he's still a really close friend. And we meet once a week to pray together over some of the issues that I'm facing as well as some of the things that, that he's facing. I had never had friends up to that point. Today, my life is rich in friendships, rich in interdependent relationships as a member of the body of Christ. And I like to say that Bruce Dreisbach gave me two things. The first thing that he gave me was my wife. And you can ask my wife this question. Uh, if David Cashin had been like he describes at 17, what would have happened if you'd met him then? And the answer is, he would not have had a snowball's chance in hell of marrying me. So I am grateful that Bruce Dreisbach's challenge found me my wife. He also found me my career because I'm an ethnographer, I'm a cultural anthropologist, my whole career has been built on asking good questions. All of that came out of that exercise as a very awkward freshman. Friends, how does God want to challenge you? 
By the way, I have a little gift for you. Uh, we're going to have a sheet of paper with name and email here. I have a book that I wrote a number of years ago called The Seven Essential Questions of Life. And it's actually uh, a book about how to ask good questions and how to listen well to people. And I've been doing this for 20 years, and, and let me just say one interesting thing. In 20 years of asking people, would you like to tell me some answer some questions for me about your worldview and how you look at life. Uh, I have almost never, only once, have I had a, had a person say no to that request. And here's the interesting thing. In 20 years of doing this, talking with hundreds of people, when I get done after listening carefully, non-judgmentally to what they say, I'll often ask, would you like to hear how I answer these questions? You know what's interesting? I've never had a single person say no, not one. Now, isn't it fun when the non-Christian basically asks you to share the gospel with them? If that happened on a regular basis, would you want to share the gospel more? I think you would. So, as we finish today, remember the story of Bruce Dreisbach. You don't have to remember my story, other than the fact that this was a guy who understood a kid's need, challenged him, and then the Lord used that by grace, to actually give me my future, my ministry, my wife, my job. All came out of that new interdependent relationship that was fostered during that time. Now, we're about to come to the Lord's table, and I just want to mention briefly, this is how we express our oneness. We take of the elements, we take of the wine, we take of the bread, and as we do so, we are imbibing Christ. We are one body in him. We emphasize what we are as a community, one people under Jesus, living in intimate relationship with him. Friends, I'm just going to close with a word of prayer, and then we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. But as we take that today, think about how God wants you to build community in your church. Not just a community here, but a community that reaches out to the people outside and opens the door to the solution to the problems that our society struggles with immensely. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this word from the scriptures, for the reality that we are one body in Christ, that every person in this room is essential to your work, to what you're doing. Father, we long to grow in our understanding of the body of Christ. We want to be able to reach out to our community in a way that helps them to understand that God builds people into community and that it's in Christ that we can overcome every, every barrier, whether it's Jew or Greek, whether it's rich or poor, whether it's slave or free, whether it's man or woman. Lord, we are all made one in Christ. And Father, as we come to your, your table, we pray that you would not only enable us to imbibe and to realize, but Father, to go out of this place and to say, okay, Lord, how can I move forward in faith to see you build community not only in my life, but in our church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.